arrested last week. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, you're in the media. What, what happened? I was part of a protest called Can't Bear the Truth um, with a group of women. We went to the front of the gates of Parliament and uh, some of the women locked themselves onto the railings and some of the rest of us just sat next to them with our torsos bare with words that represent the consequences of climate change written across our chests. <laughs> what was written across your chest? I had famine, famine on my chest, but there were things like uh, crop failure, yeah. starvation, violence, rebellion, extinction. And you got nicked. Oh, and I did, I got, I got lifted, I got lifted, which was, you know, something that I, I didn't ever think would happen to me in my life. I'm Neil Max, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. With the wildfires in the USA, unseasonal warm weather and Extinction Rebellion doing more and more actions, I wanted to sit down with somebody from the organisation to discuss what they are doing. So this episode we talk to Chloe Noldret, a member of Bristol Extinction Rebellion, about the protests, the controversy, the tactics, and how she can convince somebody like me or you to jump on board. Hi Chloe, how are Hi, you doing? Hi, I'm alright, how are you doing Neil? Great. You're here to talk about Extinction Rebellion, but your background, you work for the Old Vic for a bit, is that right? Yeah, I do. Uh, Bristol's home for me. And I came back five years ago to work at the Old Vic. And uh, I've had a really lovely and extraordinary five years working there, doing lots on evolving the programme and working on the productions that we make and also taking some of our work into the commercial sector in the West End. Um, but unfortunately, you know, with COVID impacting the arts the way that it has, you know, I'm, I'm part of the restructure that the organisation has has been obliged to do so I'm unfortunately no longer at the old Vic. Oh that's a shame and that, that's quite a recent thing then. Yeah I, I mean I could sort of see it coming when I realised that uh, the Covid crisis wasn't something that was going to be over in a matter of weeks and the impact that it would have on an ongoing basis on people going and doing the things that we used to do as part of a community like going and sitting in a theatre so I was sort of aware that you know there, there would be a potential threat to my job. And are you, have you got other plans? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have, yeah. I'm going to do some freelance work in the theatre and arts world. And I'm also applying to do a postgraduate course in climate change development. So I sort of figured that this was a really brilliant moment to Ooh. really explore some of my other interests and um, think about what I might want to do in the future. So a little bit of studying for me, hopefully. Great. And, and on that... Seamless link. Yeah, your role with Extinction Rebellion. Uh, just explain what it is you do. Yeah, so um, I've been a member of Extinction Rebellion since the beginning of the year. It was my New Year's resolution after the October Rebellion last year was to join XR and commit more of my time, something that I, I obviously feel really strongly about. So I recognise the need to join my individual efforts to the individual efforts of other people because, of course, we're all stronger when we work together. So since being engaged in XR, I've been part of the XR Bristol Families Group because I've got two primary school age children. So it's lovely to be able to do things with other people who are similarly to me unpacking the question of how you bring your children up in this compromised world 
that we find ourselves in and how you talk to them about that and prepare them for that. And I'm also part of the Movement of Movements team, which is about building relationships with communities and groups across the city to find the areas of common ground and solidarity to stand in support of each other where we can. Great. Right, let's talk specifically about what Extinction Rebellion is and what they're Mm. trying to do. What we're not going to do is debate whether there is a a counter-argument to climate change. Mm. Uh, We're not going to do that thing that a lot of people in the media do when they get a climate expert against Dave from the Red Lion uh, who (laughs) denies its existence. We're not going to do that. (laughs) So we're going to accept its scientific fact. (laughs) Thank you very much. Okay, so you can leave by that. But what we are going to do is, is talk a bit about the the demands mm. of Extinction Rebellion. So mm-hmm. I've been looking at the website and it's said Extinction Rebellion is a politically non-partisan international movement that uses non-violent direct action to persuade governments to act justly on the climate and ecological emergency. Three demands in the UK. One, mm-hmm. tell the truth. Two, act now. Three, go beyond politics. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the first one, mm-hmm. tell the truth. Mm-hmm. What do you guys mean by that? Well, what we mean by that is that we need our governments to be honest with citizens about the actual realities of what is happening. We need the information that the scientists have been producing and presenting and you know screaming about now for certainly the entirety of my lifetime. I'm, I'm 40 and you know we have known for all of that time that continuing to pump fossil fuel emissions into the atmosphere is having a completely catastrophic effect, which is only going to intensify. So the first demand of XR is saying governments are not being honest with us about this information. They know it, and increasingly we know it, but we need to have this information out in the public realm and we need to be discussing it honestly. We need not to be getting sidetracked by, you know, is there a debate about climate change or not? As you rightly said at the beginning of this, you know, there really isn't a debate. It's happening. It's happening now. A lot of what is just presented as, oh, goodness, aren't we having some strange weather, is we are seeing the impacts of the climate changing around us. And we should be drawing links between the ecological emergency and the pandemic that we're currently suffering. All these things are linked. So the first demand is that we need to be talking honestly about this. There is an increasing kind of conspiracy theory countering this that seems to be gaining ground that it's a load of nonsense. Where is that coming from? Well, it's coming from the vested interests of the fossil fuel industry, from big energy, and it's coming from the vested interests of people that control our media and the governments who are interested in maintaining business as usual, status quo, because actually there's a global elite who are doing very nicely, thank you very much, out of unfettered trade and the sort of wealth accumulation that capitalism allows. So there is a huge amount of vested interest and that's powerful and that is well-funded, spending its time trying to debunk this science in in every way possible. Uh, And not because I think they don't see that it's the truth of what's happening, but because they recognise that the changes required mitigate the worst impacts of climate change, but also the the impacts of climate change that are going to happen if we don't mitigate it require such enormous system change and threaten the, the, the wealth and the way of life that they've come to rely on. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, that it's a real threat to the existing 
order and status quo. So mm-hmm. there's a real attempt and a real vigorous disinformation campaign that you believe is deliberate and conscious. Oh, completely. It's coming from really well-funded think tanks like Heartland in the USA. And it's coming from the think tanks and the thinkers that are on Tufton Street in the UK. And actually, I wasn't even aware of Tufton Street until the really brilliant action that happened as part of the rebellion week before last, who stood outside Tufton Street and said, this is what goes on here. These are the kind of conversations that are happening in this building. And this is the kind of misinformation that, that is being sent out that is warping our sort of social dialogue about these issues. Okay, number two, Mm. act now. Mm. So no time to wait. We need to act now to reduce gas emissions to net zero by 2025. Yeah, a lot of what the government have talked about in respect to the Climate Change Act of 2008, and no real action has been taken since that act was passed now 12 years ago, because what the government are doing is they're relying on future technologies, and those technologies don't yet exist. So they are putting the burden of solving the climate crisis on our children who are growing up into this massively compromised world. And what what we're saying within XR is that's not acceptable. We cannot be relying on future technology to solve this problem. We need to be doing what we can right now. And that means reducing our fossil fuel emission, getting rid of our fossil fuel emission really is what needs to happen. It's what we talk about when we talk about getting to carbon neutral or net zero, which means not pumping any more carbon into the air. And it also means not relying on offsetting. You know, that is a delightful idea. And, you know, I think it's kind of reassuring to go, well, I'll take this flight, but I'll put some money into an offsetting scheme. Offsetting is not the answer. We just have to do do less, emit less carbon dioxide. So act now is crucial. We need to treat this as a crisis. We need to treat it as an emergency. And in an emergency, you don't sort of sit around and think, my house is on fire, but maybe someone in 30 years' time will invent a sprinkler system, which means the fire will automatically put itself out. No, you, you ring the fire brigade and you get them to shoot water in through the windows right now. That's the situation we're in. And number three, and this is interesting, I think, going beyond politics, mm. because that's something that's at the centre of Extinction Rebellion, which is possibly slightly different than some other protests and change movements having no affiliation to any political ideology Mm. or any political party. Mm. Uh, Why is that key? Well, essentially, we believe that the system has failed us. We have this oppositional democracy in this country, and indeed in, in most of the global north, where politicians are just focused on winning votes for the next election. So we're thinking in terms of four or five year cycles. And that's what's allowed this crisis to just be kicked down the road continually for the last at least 40 years problem for someone else problem for someone else because the kind of change that we're talking about it isn't necessarily going to be popular with parties that are seeking to be re-elected so we believe that that system has therefore failed us because it's not protecting our future so the key demand from xr in respect to this aspect of response to the emergency is that we need to create a citizens assembly Citizens' assemblies are really interesting, and we've seen them be used recently. A really good example is in Ireland over the abortion debate. People are drawn into a citizens' assembly through a process of sortition, which is exactly the same as we would use for selecting people for jury service, so that the people you get on a citizens' assembly are truly representative of everybody that lives in the country. A wide range of people geographically, 
a wide range of people in terms of their age, in terms of their lived experience, in terms of their background. And that means that those people can come together and be informed by experts. They can ask for information, they can be presented with information which is not affected by party political government. And then they can make decisions based on that information and based on the discussions that they have as a whole group. And the idea is that those decisions become legally binding. This can be transformative for the way that we think about our future. And it puts power in the hands of ordinary citizens. And I just think it's a really exciting idea. And brilliantly, in Bristol, we're trialling a version of it. So Your City, Your Future, a questionnaire that's been circulated really widely in Bristol over the last few weeks. And that is going to pull together a group of people to, to start working with the budget, with the council, to start addressing our COVID recovery. So it's a really, really powerful way of ensuring that true democracy is is being enacted all the kind of the theory the ideas of how you want to change things and the the lobbying and the pressure and the protests is there anything specifically tangible that's happened lately that you're kind of pushing government for yeah absolutely and i i know that one of the criticisms of xr in the past has been oh it's all highlighting the problems and not offering any solutions but What's happened recently, and which is a real major moment that this rebellion has been focused around, is the creation of the CEE Bill. That's the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill. And that's been put together over the last few years by an alliance of scientists and lawyers and activists as a sort of follow-up to the Climate Change Act of 2008, which was passed by Parliament and basically nothing's happened. So this alliance have put together a private member's bill which calls for a serious plan of action, effective immediately. And it covers how we would deal with our fair share of emissions across our entire carbon footprint. It's all about protecting and conserving nature, particularly along our food supply chains. And it is setting out solutions that can be put in place now, so not waiting for things that might come online in the future. The focus of the rebellion really has been to get MPs to rally behind this bill so that it can be debated in Parliament. Caroline Lucas, the Green MP, picked it up initially and then 20 more MPs rallied behind it. And it's a growing coalition of MPs who are now behind it. It's over 50 now. And it's been set for a debate in March next year. Obviously, the more support that we can get behind it, the the better the hearing it will get when it is debated in the House. But Why it's exciting is it sets out this real tangible framework for the changes that we could make that would genuinely have a difference. You are or you see yourself as a a leaderless organisation, but you kind of have a leader, don't you, in in Roger Hallam at the same time that uh, sort of kind of shapes the strategy. So where does that fit with his role? Would he see himself as not a leader? Well, Roger actually has stepped away from XR at this point. So he has stepped away from XR and set up a new organisation called Beyond Politics, which is actually a new political party, which which is actually slightly complex. They've, they've renamed it because I think it was becoming quite challenging. Beyond Politics is a key part of XR's slogan, and I think it wasn't working to call his new organisation, which is a political party, Beyond Politics. So yeah, he has stepped away. XR does have, you know, spokespeople within it and people who are have been around since the beginning and are part of the sort of founding group. But it is at its core a movement which involves decentralised power. And for me, it's 
been really, really interesting getting involved in a movement that makes collective decisions rather than individual ones. And I have professionally been trained, if it's my meeting, hold that space, hold the agenda, understand what I want to get out of the meeting and therefore make sure that the meeting is doing what I need it to do. Is that difficult to achieve? I I guess I ask that because the Bristol Cable itself is community-owned, community-led, decisions are made democratically, and sometimes that can take longer to get to the end point, and it can sometimes be a tricky process. But I guess if you have the intention in mind to involve everybody and to make that whole thing kind Mm. of democratic from the word go, Mm. did you personally find that a difficult transition? Yeah, I did have to unlearn a lot of how I have learned how to work. But... That wasn't something that felt uncomfortable to me. It was something that sort of felt revelatory, actually. I I realised very quickly that there is an enormous value to step into a team that is trying to organise a campaign, for example, because everybody walks in and they're equal. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed about the time that I've spent with XR is that I will find myself in a, a Zoom breakout room and there'll be people there from different ages and different backgrounds. And everybody's voice is equal and is equally valued. That's a sort of an amazing and surprising thing. There's no presumption that age equals wisdom or that youth equals inexperience. Everybody has something different to bring. What that allows everybody to do, I think, is to bring the best of themselves to the table. And yes, that does mean that decisions sometimes do take longer. But I think the quality of the discussion and then the quality of the buy-in from everybody that's been part of that conversation is so much greater than it was. And somewhere in all of that, there is a really amazing model for how we might reimagine our society. And that is the thing that gives me hope. I guess a kind of future model of how decisions can be made, a kind of living example of that. Do you have to leave your ego at the door a bit? I mean, you know, personally, I would sometimes have the temptation to to give my opinion and be quite clear about that and then have to maybe sort of step back a a touch is that something you've had to do yourself Well, I think it's something that we're all really gently encouraged to do at the beginning there's a really lovely statement that gets read out at the beginning of certainly the meetings that we used to have in person before lockdown happened and everything moved on to zoom you know everybody's experiences are different some people are really confident speaking some people aren't so confident speaking but we need to make space for each other be aware if you are the sort of person who is likely to take up a lot of space and is comfortable doing that Make sure that you create the space for other people. Well, somebody will stand up and say that. Yeah. So if, so if I walked through the door, everyone's kind of sat down, somebody stands up and gives the sort of terms of reference of the discussion, yeah? Yeah. And and not in a sort of, you know, dictatorial way, but in a sort of loving way, just to remind us all that, you know, we're all different, but we're all equal. Actually, that's a really lovely provocation to start any kind of discussion. We have a series of hand signals that are used within these kind of conversations. People might have seen the sort of wavy hands, which is BSL, British Sign Language, for applause. And that's a way of sort of demonstrating that you agree with what someone is saying without creating a noise which interrupts their flow. People put their finger up if they want to speak. There's a particular hand signal if you've got a point that is directly related to the one that is being spoken about at the moment. You can make a C with your hands if you want clarification. This really, really lightly held but respected structure for how we engage respectfully. Who set that structure? I don't know. I I imagine it's been present since the beginning of XR. I don't think XR created it. A lot of the ways that XR functions have come from 
campaigning groups and activist organisations that have been functional for many, many you know, decades. So I think it's been an evolutionary process. And let's talk about the protests, the direct mm. action itself, because that's where most of the kind of media focus and some of the criticism mm-hmm. comes from. Mm. Obviously, we've had that in Bristol. What's the kind of rationale? Because it's very different and feels very different than some other protest movements, how you go about protests and lots of theatre, lots of kind of acting, lots of, you know, there's all the obvious disruption of transport, but how that's done, the methodology behind it, what, what's the thinking behind why you do it in, in that way? Well, you mentioned Greta. Uh, you know, good communication is, I think, both the medium and the message. It's why, you know, Barack Obama was so impactful. He was the right person to be saying the things that he was saying. Greta is is an absolute perfect example. She is the right medium for her message. And I think that the impact that she's had, combined actually as well with the campaigning impact of XR over the last two years, has had more impact on the public consciousness and awareness of climate change than 40 years of scientists presenting facts and data. And with all due respect to the amazing work done by Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, I think there's been more impact on the public consciousness about climate change in two years than there has been in all their 40 years of campaigning. So XR's tactics are to use non-violent civil disruption, non-violent direct action to highlight the problems that we're facing and the inaction of governments. And it's been really controversial. And I think it's important to say that XR, one of the most striking things for me about XR is the way that it is able to reflect evaluate and absorb all of that learning into the way it proceeds. Because we are in an emergency, Exxon, I think, early on made a decision to say, look, we might not have all of this perfect, but we just have to start doing things now. There's been quite a lot of retrospectively learning and evolving, and the organisation is still very young. It's really only a couple of years old, but it is already a more mature organisation than it was. I think a lot of the tactics that were deployed early on you know, continue to be used and also are being rethought, reimagined, reshaped. The targets are being refined. I think it's really interesting that this rebellion that just happened in London has been much more about disrupting, A, the government, but also, of course, the Murdoch press, the fossil fuel industry. It's not been about creating mass disruption for the public. So that's been a major criticism, it has, hasn't it? Yeah. A good example of that would be, I can't remember which tube station it was in or mm. train station in London, working people on their way to work using public transport. And I think it was a chat from Bristol as well, wasn't it? Yeah, Amongst it was them jumping on the tube, stopping it. And the, I think that's interesting you say that about the right target. Mm. And lots of people did feel that that wasn't the target that you should be aiming at. Yeah, absolutely. And XR evaluated that. And, and of course, this is part of having a decentralised power structure. Groups are encouraged to plan and carry out their own actions, encouraged to share information about what they're doing. As long as it's an action that is within the aims of the organisation, they're empowered to go ahead and do that. Now, that action was discussed. A lot of people felt really, really uncomfortable about it. But within a decentralised power organisation, the people that wanted to do it said, no, we're going to go ahead and do this anyway. It didn't have the full backing of the movement behind it, but they went ahead and did it. And then the movement really did evaluate that. There was a lot of self-reflection and discussion that went on around that. And yeah, I think pretty much everybody within the movement would agree that preventing people from using public transport to go to work 
is not the right focus for, for our, <laughs> well, our quite, quite. <laughs> yeah. But so you've reevaluated, and you said about the Murdoch Press and the mm. recent targeting government buildings. There's a focus on who the enemy is yeah. more clearly. And there was very, very little civil disruption. Certainly during the Bristol Rebellion, the plan here was to close a bridge that would cause as least disruption as possible to the public. And in fact, you know, the debate about whether Prince Street Bridge could be reserved for pedestrians and cyclists continues. I think that's a really useful debate for us to be having within the city. There was no public disruption intended. The one that did take place in Bristol had the nation's press's eye all over the city. Mm. It caused a lot of unrest and a lot of disruption to people getting from A to B in terms of work. One of the and I and I accept that you know we are in a in a global emergency mm. and, and what are you supposed to do? Mm. Which action are you referring to there? M thirty two. I think yeah, the, yeah. one of the bridges yeah. was cut off. I, I guess my question is: Are you in danger of kind of losing the people that you want to engage with this? Did you feel that that happened in Bristol or, or not? Well, I think the important thing was, and the reason for carrying out such a high profile and disruptive action like that, is because of the difficulty of of getting the the, the conversation happening any other way. If the government was taking the action that was required, if there was the right amount of action coming from from local government here in Bristol then the scale of disruption that has been enacted by XR at points wouldn't have been necessary. But we're at a point of going, what on earth can we do to get this issue discussed and acted on? So there is that weighing up of what can you do that is unignorable, might create a a short period of disruption that might have a really big impact on some people. It might have a really small impact on a lot of people. But will it mean that everyone is aware of the issues and thinking about them, whether or not they think, oh, what a load of nonsense and time wasters and, you know, the whole get a job nonsense that's thrown at XR a lot, or whether they think, oh, right, well, these people must have a reason for being here and they look like pretty ordinary people, which XR really is. What is it that they're so concerned about? Oh, right, now I'm thinking about climate change. Now I'm considering well, actually, that does seem like a really big issue and maybe it's something we should all be taking more seriously. How do people go if they have a job? People do it in their spare time a lot of the time. I mean, uh, it's difficult to say because, of course, XR has a really wide membership. So there are a lot of young people who are in education. There are a lot of retired people who a lot of them are lifelong environmental activists. They have a huge amount of experience and they've also got loads of time on their hands. And then I suppose there are people like me who have gone, right, well, I feel so strongly about this. I need to commit my personal time to it outside of my job, which was what I was doing before lockdown happened and before I was furloughed. During the period that I've been on furlough, I've basically been a full time activist. And do you feel that acutely as Extinction Rebellion? Is there a frustration that you do feel, um, you said yourself, the trope? Get, get a job, I'm on my way to work. Do, do you feel that there is a kind of lazy stereotype of what a member of Extinction Rebellion is? Yeah, but I think there are a lot of lazy stereotypes in this country and to a huge extent they're fueled by our mass media, which has a vested interest in keeping us divided, in keeping us pitted against each other. It, it creates great drama for their headlines and it sort of keeps us vested in the system. That is one of the major problems that we have socially at the moment. We aren't seeing a nuanced debate about who XR really are. Indeed, we're not seeing a nuanced debate about, you know, who the people campaigning for All Black Lives Matter are either. 
the media is just interested in writing people off, which means that they can carry on with business as usual. Is there some responsibility to the organisation of how it, it is perceived? I think about the, the sort of odd theatre that you do probably does kind of create a perception of it being a, a bit of a white middle class thing. Would that be fair? Well, I think it's, again, an easy way of characterising the movement to say that it's, you know, it's it's white. I mean, funnily enough, the media at the moment can't decide whether XR <laughs> is full of trust fundarians or whether it's full of people who should go out and get a job. You know, are we the privileged elite or are we the sort of scandals? The fact that it can't decide partly demonstrates, I think, that, that we're winning because they're running out of arguments to use against us. The perception that it's white, middle class and elite is there. In my experience, that's not completely accurate, but I think it is part of being in a movement that uses these tactics of direct action, nonviolent civil disobedience. And there is a certain privilege that I have as a, you know, a, a, a middle-aged, middle-class white woman to go and step into a protest where I absolutely understand that the likelihood is that I will be arrested. I have a privilege in doing that and not being particularly scared of it because the system in many ways is on my side. I absolutely appreciate that people whose lived experiences are different people who've experienced persecution at the hands of others in society or persecution at the hands of the police, that's not a comfortable place to be. And it's really important to say that being able to put yourself on the front line and being arrested is not the only way to contribute towards XR at all. There is a role for everybody and a level of engagement for everybody, but a lot of people do choose to make that statement and to carry their civil disobedience through to that conclusion But yeah, I I absolutely appreciate the privilege that is inherent within me being able to make that decision and how different that might feel for other people. I think there's the personal thing around, and we'll talk about the the, the relationship with the police and and arrests, but I think in the context of of messaging and and how you connect with, I guess, I don't know, white van man, for example, Mm. or many members of the BME community, Mm. do you feel that you could get the messaging better to be more appealing to to those demographics? Or do you feel that's an unfair criticism? I'm absolutely sure we could always do more. I mean, everybody could always do more. And that's part of the role that I do within XR, which is movement of movements. It is about reaching out to different groups, whether it's All Black Lives Matter or Stop the Mangum Easy or groups that are campaigning for social justice in, in many other varied ways. Reaching out and saying, look, we've all got common causes here Climate justice is social justice, and we can all do that together yeah. by playing our part distinctly, but in solidarity with each other. Black and ethnic minority people and white working class communities are disproportionately affected by poor air pollution, you know, particularly in, in a city like Bristol. So surely that message needs to cut through to those communities. And one of the ways that we're doing that at the moment is through a, a movement of movements campaign called Our Air, Our City, which I'm part of. And that is about bringing community groups from across the city together to amplify our powers as a campaigning force for clean air in the city. And absolutely, the most important thing for us to do with that campaign is to centre the voices of the people who are most affected. And you're absolutely right. They are people from um, Bristol's BAME communities and people from Bristol's white working class communities. And, And in no small part... They are also the people least responsible for Bristol's illegal levels of air pollution. The whole purpose of that campaign is to engage in the issues that actually matter to people living in this city 
I mean, I consider myself a white working class person. I am on page with regards to combating climate change, but some of the kind of, I guess, the theatrical stuff, it does put me off. And and I know it puts other people off similar to me too. I've just got to pause that conversation for a second. Ah, the sound of silence. Without people like you chipping in, this podcast and the rest of Bristol Cable's work won't happen and will be silenced. So, we don't have corporate advertising, but we do have 2,200 people in Bristol who put in a couple of quid a month by becoming members of the Cable, which makes this new model of journalism in Bristol possible. So if you're enjoying this, and thousands of you are, please join us today. And if anything, you can pay my fee. Find out more on the Cable website. Is there another way or, or are you thinking how you can have, you know, more cut through or the messaging slightly different? Because I think some of the, I don't know, it, it feels a bit like sort of GCSE theatre school, some of it for me, and it just puts me off. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Our Air Our City will not necessarily yeah. involve, you know, groups of samba bands and, <laughs> and you know, drummers and people chanting yeah. earth mantras. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, I, and I know what you mean. Um, And there is there is space within the movement for that. And there are also people in the movement for whom that's not a massive turn on. and, And that's not the reason that they're there. But I suppose there's something about the way that XR tries to bring a spirit of joy to its protests to counteract the grief. You know, we have to we have to take both of those things forward with us. You know, if we just take the grief, that's not the way of engaging people either, because it just becomes despair. But actually, if you bring the, the joyful parts of community with you as well and of joining together to protest about what you believe in and absolutely aligning yeah. your action with your purposes and your values, there is huge joy in that. I struggle with too, too much, much joy. No more joy. All right, no more joy. Too okay. much joy puts, make, makes me hide no in the back joy. of the room. Okay. That's probably... <laughs> no more from here on in. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah, for sure. And I think, yeah, you, like, you're right. It, it's trying to to reach out. The one thing you would say about it in the context of having a impact and being covered by the media, which which is part of the game, I presume as mm. well. As you as you say, you want people to see this mm. by doing something that's a bit outlandish. Mm. It's probably going to be picked up more than someone just walking along and waving a placard, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, as I say, the scientists have been saying this for years, and it's been really easy to ignore them. We can't do that anymore. So we've got to get the attention of the media and of public discourse another way. And yeah, the, the you know the sort of big bright mm. visuals of XR are one really effective way of doing that. You know, having been on XR marches, there are spaces within those marches where everyone can feel comfortable. If you want to be up there dancing and singing and drumming, and there's a space for you to do that. If you'd actually like to be somewhere else where it's quieter you can do that yeah i, I think there is space for everything maybe just having a bit of hip-hop well frequently yeah. there is there's normally maybe having a bit of hip-hop around. a bit of graffiti yeah. a bit of break dancing yeah you know you've got some experience in this field having worked at the old vic you know theater being notorious and, and known predominantly as as quite a kind of white middle class world because you were involved in city conversations which was about trying yeah. to reach out to particularly the, the the black community in the city uh, connect with the theater more mm. and presumably you had to try different approaches to engage with a different audience i guess that's what i'm kind of steering towards that my, my sense is you probably need to do that a little bit 
with Extinction Rebellion to, to reach out beyond that core base? Totally. That is part of RRR City. And that's part of the strategy that we're developing for engaging with Bristol going forward. Sure. I just want to talk a little bit about Greta Thunberg herself, actually, if mm. that's OK. When she came to Bristol, I went down with my son mm. and I got to me. I was quite it was quite emotional seeing so many young people engaged with an issue. I've become a bit cynical about maybe, you know, for years, young people felt like they were disengaged from from politics or disengaged from movements of change and I was just looking around seeing the range of young people at Mm. these events and particularly the day that Greta was here Mm. and it was really moving Mm. I kind of wonder now young people feel more engaged with protest and social environmental political issues now and you cited Black Lives Matter as well Mm. as another example more than they have done for 20 odd years 30 years I I think Mm. Would, would that be true? Well, I, I think it is. And why, I guess, is my question. And I think the reason why is, is obvious. They are um, coming of age at the point where the planet is dying. You know, amazing talking to the people from XR Youth. We were up near the suspension bridge with them, Bristol Rebellion, and just being around talking to the, the people who were there with XR Youth is, you know, it's it's a completely humbling experience because when I was 17, I was not putting my liberty on the line by closing roads and yeah. being arrested on the suspension bridge. I was thinking about my future career. I was thinking about where I was going to go to university. I was thinking about hanging out with my friends. I was thinking about what the world could do for me. And these young people are realising that they don't they don't get to ask that question because the world is in such a dire, dire place. And rather than you know despairing or giving up or just, going out and drinking anyway they're going well what can I do for the world and I just take my hat off to them they are so brilliantly articulate about their reasons for action and their rage is incandescent and I really want to stand in solidarity with them wherever and and whenever possible because you know I've got two kids you know they are absolutely aware of the climate crisis in a way that I think is you know appropriate for the ages that they are at the moment but you know, they're not going to be able to hide from the realities of what's coming. It's going to affect and define and probably limit their lifespan. Yeah, I agree. Does it feel youth-led, Chloe? Because I think one of the criticisms is it's kind of parents sort of pushing the message through their children. I don't know if that's a bit unfair. Well, the, the young people that I've met aren't being told what to think by anybody, much less by me or anyone from sure. my generation. Yeah. They have absolute conviction in what they think. They are their own views and they have come from, you know, looking around, seeing what's happening in the world and being, you know, rightly outraged by it. I I don't for a second think any of those young people are influenced by what anyone else is saying. I'm interested (laughs) in this going beyond politics. Mm. I I guess the key question is we live in a global capitalist society of um, goods moving back and forth all across the world. Mm -hmm. How can a green movement be sustainable without attacking the heart of capitalism? I, I don't, I don't think it can. I think Priti Patel is absolutely right when she says these actions are an attack on our capitalist, capitalist society. I think, yeah, well done Priti, you're paying attention. They absolutely are. Because <laughs> our capitalist society yeah. is making us all ill. It's making us physically ill. It's making us mentally ill. It's making us emotionally ill. It's plundering our planet. Capitalism is responsible for 
the racism that we see inherent in the society around us because racism is the result of capitalists' exploitation of people and capitalism is responsible for the sure. climate change that we see happening around us because capitalism um, is, is, is plundering the planet for profit. Isn't that being political then, though? Well, I don't think it's being party political. That's not going beyond politics, then, is it? Um, right, OK. Well, I think it's, it's small P politics. That's a criticism of Black Lives Matter, isn't it? The Black Lives Matter, they're saying that it, you know, it's a Marxist-led organisation. So they, they've been criticised for being seen as too politically aligned to an ideology. But actually, Extinction Rebellion have been criticised the other way for not being aligned to a political ideology. I was surprised you said that. I expected... Yeah, I mean, that's not going beyond a political ideology, though, is it? Just a political party politics. I think what it's doing is saying the system is unsustainable. And we need to change the system. Okay. You know, yeah. I don't think it's necessarily, you know, okay. criticism. Um, you know, we've we've all got here, and there've been different political parties in power over the last forty years. We are where we are. What's always remained secure is the system, and it's the system that is ruining us. What do we replace that system with? Um, well, I think we replace it with something that is designed and invested in by citizens that's why the citizens assembly is really important i think we need to replace it with processes by which we are respecting the natural world around us we replace it with building sustainably homes for people to live in we replace it with thinking about the way our food is grown and transported i think we replace it with something that is that is designed from that place of sort of love and joy and community spirit that is inherent within the XR communities and, and you know it's perhaps what you're talking about when you're not quite connecting with some of the ways that yeah. protests look and feel but you know somewhere in all of that is human beings being respectful and collaborative and treating each other equally. That sounds a bit like socialism to me does that sound a bit like socialism maybe like eco-socialism a bit? Yeah, maybe. A bit of that? maybe I mean I'm not I'm not afraid of socialism <laughs> where I would sit on the political yeah. spectrum would say okay. yeah, yeah that that's not a bad thing socialism is about looking after everybody it's also about saying you know let's not design and build a system in which 30 billionaires can own as much wealth as the poorest half of the planet you know that that's completely inappropriate yeah, for sure. It's an interesting, wasn't it? Because I suppose equally you could be critical of some countries built on more socialist, communist lines because of the reliance upon heavy industry. But with that kind of long gone, looking at sort of different political models, certainly the political model at the moment globally um, in terms of trade is, is, you know, I saw something the other day, an advert for when it was peaches. I think peaches were picked in Mexico. They were packed in Thailand and they were being sold in France. Yeah, I mean, it's just patently you know, ridiculous. Isn't it's it? just absurd, isn't it? Yeah. If, you know, if peaches aren't in season yeah. locally, don't eat peaches. The problem is capitalism yeah. has taught us that we can have whatever we want whenever we want it. And the reality is that has yeah. led us to the point where the planet is on the verge of collapse. But I think it's really important that we also draw a distinction between communism and socialism, which are not the same thing at all. Yeah, because China's one of the worst, isn't it, in terms of emissions? Yeah, I don't think communist China has got all the answers. So it's, it's, it's wrong to conflate a broadly sort of socialist position with one that's saying, oh, you want to drive us all to communism. Again, I think that is a bit of mass media whipping up of hysteria. Yeah. They're kind of a bit like the Venezuela thing also gets thrown out as well, doesn't it? If mm. there's any suggestion of, <laughs> of a slightly alternative model. Yeah. Mm. Let me just talk a bit about when it comes to organising protests with with authorities, mm. with the police and with the council, where it's probably slightly differs than some other protest movements. You will often have a 
dialogue or a conversation with authorities before you turn up for a protest yeah which some people think is good because it means it's safer and organized other people feel that that goes against the spirit of anarchism and protest why is that decision kind of made by by extinction rebellion um i'm not entirely sure i'm the best person to talk to about that because i've not been involved in any of those direct actions but what i do know is that xr is not as far as i've seen at all a movement of anarchists it's not promoting anarchy and chaos at all it's very controlled and it's very organized whilst you know there are actions that are designed to be direct and to involve civil disruption civil disobedience it's actually much more productive for us to be the majority of the time in a really collaborative productive relationship with police so that they know what we're doing they're reassured of our risk assessments and of what's going to happen because collaboration is absolutely key to how we move forward from this place we're not um and i think it's about the purposefulness with which xr is acting you know there there are there are times when it's it's just to everybody's benefit for law enforcement and for police to be aware of what's happening and to be in a constant dialogue we are as a movement i think not trying to bring about anarchy and chaos there are things like the murdoch press action i think happened um in a in a very controlled way i don't think an awful lot of information about that was was known in advance but absolutely everything that was happening in Parliament Square over the last couple of weeks and everything that was happening in Bristol on the harbour side during the Bristol Rebellion was done in dialogue with the police. And dialogue with the mayor as well? Um, yeah. Marvin yeah. You, you spoke about your city, your future, which is a city council-led thing. Yeah. So the strategy of XR is to collaborate and to work with the political establishments to try and shift and change their position. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there are times when we're taking direct action in anger to say, you know, you need to be doing more. But there are absolutely also times when we recognise that, you know, there is a system and there are aspects of it that can be adapted to work for the benefit of how we move forward from this point. Carrot and stick, a bit bit of both. We're not here to cause trouble for the sake of trouble. It's all very purposeful. A couple of questions to kind of wrap up. One is around lockdown and COVID-19 and in an odd kind of way one of the positives of that has probably been the replenishment of the environment a bit and a second one and it's definitely hit me actually on a personal note to think a bit more about what I eat and where that comes from and Mm. I've started to grow my own food in the garden and stuff and I think it's probably one of the first times many people feel the interconnectedness of life and the planet you know it's the first time in my life I, I think and I'm sure many that something that's affecting you here now is affecting people on the opposite side of the world in such a direct way, which has had a kind of an impression to make the world feel smaller and, as I say, interconnected, which I think may have an effect on people being more mindful of all this stuff. Mm. I absolutely recognise some of what you're saying. The pause in our lives that was afforded by particularly that beginning bit of lockdown when it was just very, very quiet and we were all at home... You know, I also recognise for a lot of people, home's not a safe place and that was a difficult and challenging time in many ways. But for a lot of us, we were able to just slow down, breathe some clean air for the first time in the lives of our children in this city, breathing lungfuls of clean air. To think about what our lives are really about when we're not getting up, getting out the door, getting to work, working all day, rushing home, you know, trying to fit the things that make life worth living into the corners of your life because so much of our lives are dictated by the need to earn a living. So I think, you know, for everyone that did experience you know, a positive moment, find themselves thinking a little bit more about 
our interconnectedness and our relationship with nature and valuing our air and our environment a little bit more. I think that's that's really wonderful and in many ways a really, really helpful thing for the environmental movement to be able to say, don't you remember what it was like when everything stopped and how great that felt? And I think we recognise that everything stopping is not the solution, but a little bit of a taste of what it might feel like to live in a world that is more conducive to human happiness was a lovely thing. You said there about lockdown having replenished nature. I think we mustn't overstate that. The fact that our emissions dropped so radically for a, a short period of time has not had any lasting impact on what's happening in the climate. And one of the things sure. that is absolutely central to XR is that in transitioning to a greener economy needs to be a just and fair transition that needs to not leave anybody behind. Plenty of people have been left behind by the, the COVID recovery. Um, plenty of people have been plunged into you know, really difficult economic circumstances by it. And that's that's not what we want to see happen on a large scale um, if we transition. When we transition, we have to transition towards something that is more sustainable. There is no doubt, I feel, that the Overton window has shifted on all mm. green issues in the last five years at a rapid rate. And I think that there's equally no doubt that the tactics, the strategy, the impact of Extinction Rebellion and you know, the profile of Greta Thunberg has had on this issue, you know, and it is the single biggest issue that affects humanity at the moment. You know, we cannot hide from that, despite all the things about representation and messaging and all this kind of stuff. The bigger point is that. But at the simultaneously running along a trajectory to this is that counter view, which we touched on at the start of the show. When you've got people like Donald Trump in the States, people like Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, part of my family are Brazilian, mm. who utterly deny any of this and, and are quite possibly, you know, allegedly in conversation or in bed with big organisations that benefit from the status quo. How can we stay hopeful? And are you hopeful that we oh, can make this real change yeah. that, that we have to make? That's a, that's a really big question. You know, everyone is entitled to their own opinions, but facts are facts. I don't think that Trump and Bolsonaro are ignorant of the facts although maybe I'm overstating the intelligence of at least one of them here. I don't think they're ignorant of the facts. I just think they, <laughs> it's in their interests to continue to deny and suppress them. We have to use the democratic levers that are available to us. We have to vote for people that we think are going to act in our best long-term interests. I think that means that we all have to think collectively about what our best interests are. For many people, the best interests of humanity might not be in alignment with the best interests of their own life. But what's happening yeah. is going to affect us all. There is no escaping it. So we have to use our democratic levers. And I think we have to keep campaigning and we have to keep pushing at that window. As I sort of touched on earlier, the thing that gives me hope is how it feels to act in alignment with your purpose and your values. You know, how complete I feel as a human being for having come out of three weeks of rebellion in which I've genuinely put my body on the line of my beliefs that feels empowering and doing that alongside other people and it bringing out the best in all of us that's the thing that gives me hope you have to take hope where you can get it at the moment as Greta Thunberg says once you begin to act hope is everywhere but hoping on its own isn't enough we have to also act 
And then you do start to feel the power of what human beings can do when we work together for good. And an awakening of consciousness, my sense is that you can bang the drum in any area, but unless somebody feels, connects with that issue, has some resonance with their own personal experience, Mm. they rarely will see it as something to kind of jump on. So it kind of feels to me like evolution, not revolution, but kind of actually a, a, a bit of revolution as well mm-hmm. <laughs> is a twin hit, isn't it? I guess. Yeah. Winning hearts and minds and also challenging institutions whose interest is to maintain the current order. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's a, there's a, there's a, an evolution that needs to happen within all of us. And I do think there is a revolution that needs to happen socially. It needs to include social justice. It needs to include climate justice. But, you know, I don't want to be involved in any revolution that doesn't involve dancing. I want that revolution to be filled with a spirit of joy <laughs> yeah. as well. Can you suggest that then to, when you go hot back hot. to, I'll yeah, a bit more, hot. a bit of street dance and yeah. maybe a bit of break dancing and, yeah. and then I'm, I'm in then. Get right. some lino yeah. down. I mean, my knees are a bit buggered these yeah. days, but I could do a bit, yeah. Less wafty, a bit more hardcore. Uh, I'll be there then. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, Chloe, thank you ever so much for being thank so you, candid and so honest. I, re- I really appreciate that. And I've really enjoyed talking to you. I've come away with lots to think about and hopefully people listening have. And also, yeah, the, the, the issue is far bigger than some of these little criticisms, I think, and people need to get their head around that and get over it, don't they? Thank you. Thank you for the chat. Lovely. Lovely job. Thank you, Chloe. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Bristol Unpacked, you might want to catch some of the others. No doubt you can find all the episodes on various podcast platforms. And do stay tuned for next week when we have another brilliant topic and a fantastic guest, which will remain a surprise. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs. And a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable along with 2,000 others to create a new kind of media for the city.